Hey everyone, you're listening to the 107 podcast where we get together every fortnight and sometimes more often to talk about technology, business and the humans in it. I'm your host Ivan Stegic. My guest today is Adam Bradley. Adam is a multi-talented engineer who has been involved in the computer history field for over a decade at the National Museum of Computing which is located at the English country house of Bletchley Park. Now, Bletchley Park may sound familiar to you because it's the estate that became the principal center of Allied codebreaking during the Second World War. It's the home of the codebreakers, 10,000 men and women of a professor type that worked in the wider organization, the most famous of whom that you've probably heard of is Alan Turing. It's where Colossus was developed, the world's first programmable digital electronic computer that was used to help in decryption. Adam wears many hats, but he's primarily a railway engineer day to day. And when he's not playing with trains or computers, he's probably to be found designing and building something vehicle related. I'm really excited to be speaking with Adam about the rescue project that he and two other colleagues are working on and actually a bigger team of people, quite honestly. They're rescuing an IBM System 360 Model 20 mainframe from the early 1960s, a journey that started by having to transport it across Europe to England before Brexit was final, and hopefully get it to work again. Let's find out more together. Hello, Adam. Welcome. It's a pleasure to have you joining me on the podcast. Hi, Ivan. It's a pleasure to be here. Let's start by finding out where you're joining us from today, and what's the weather like? I'll be joining you from sunny Leighton Buzzard in Bedfordshire in the United Kingdom, um, about 10 miles from Bletchley Park. 10 miles. And what direction is that from Bletchley Park? Uh, I am south of Bletchley Park, about 10 miles south. south. So so you're closer to London than you are uh, up to Bletchley. Okay, wonderful. And you said it's sunny there today? Yeah, sunny and clear skies for a change here in Old Blighty. Oh my, that's great. Well, as I said in the intro, you're rescuing an old IBM mainframe. What's so special about an old computer from 1964? So the IBM System 360 is probably one of the most recognizable computer systems ever brought to market. If you've ever seen the show Mad Men, for instance, the featured computer in Mad Men is the IBM 360. It's, they came oh. in red or blue. They've got those big reel-to-reel tape drives, the big disk drives, those huge control panels that everyone loves to see. And that's sort of the, the main... Everyone understands what a 360 is when you show them that. But also, they were the first family of computers designed to cover a complete range of applications in both commercial and scientific, from a small scale to a large scale. NASA used an IBM 360... Uh, and a lot of its space exploration programs, they were the leading computer of the 60s. They're really, really quite um, important turning point in computer history. And they lasted for how long? What was their longevity? So um, I believe that, well, in fact, I know that some System 360 software is still running today on the modern System Z mainframes, and certainly people do uh, use a lot of the same architecture and software. But they started manufacturing them in 1964, um, and to be honest with you, I'm not entirely sure when the last one was actually built. I think, I want to say 1971. And I know about the AS400 and, the, and is it the AS390. Is this the predecessor to that or was there um, a whole bunch of stuff in between? Yeah, there's a whole bunch of stuff in between. But yes, technically, I mean, it's a different architecture. But yes, um, so when System 360, 370, 308X, 3090, 308X is obviously... 
Um, then I think you had System 390, um, Z series mainframes, Z9, oh, Z10, yes. and then you go through all that, all that lovely uh, I series as well. Yeah, and of course we started out with the 1400s. So it's been a uh, progressive history of IBM mainframes, and as I say, the mainframe department is still manufacturing uh, Z series machines today. Incredible. What what was so interesting and special about this particular piece of hardware that you are rescuing? So the thing with IBM 360s is, I mean, I've had a passion for them for so long because they're so iconic, but you don't often find one. Um, museums have them. There's a few in private hands. Um, obviously, most of them are very, very large and take a lot of power. Um, and I, to be honest, never thought I'd ever come across one. I thought they'd all been hoover up, hoovered up by collectors. Um, and then when we stumbled across ours, we thought, wow, that's that's quite something special. So... Um, I mean, the story behind it is is certainly interesting, and I hope to go into it a bit with you later. Yeah, it involves some sort of uh, drunk eBaying, I believe. What, what, how did you come across this this piece of hardware? So um, it was a friend of mine's birthday, and uh, we were meeting at a pub in Leighton Buzzard um, for his birthday drinks on a Monday evening, as as one does. And uh, there was an Irish uh, country folk band playing in the back to to nobody but us. Um, and my business partner at the time had just uh, just moved house uh, to the local area, and I said to him, oh, "Why don't you come for a drink and uh, and join us?" And so he came along, and I've known him, Chris Chris Blackburn for um, over ten years, probably about twelve years now. He was a volunteer at the Museum of Computing with me for quite a long time, and we now work together and have done for quite a few years. Um, and we were sitting down having a few drinks as you do, and the evening was you know getting on a bit, and sort of nine p.m. And Chris turned to me and handed me his phone and looked at it. And he was on a, he was on German eBay. Now, neither Chris nor I speak German, so I'm not quite sure why he was on German eBay, but, you know, as one does. <laughs> and um, he shows me this listing. And the, the listing has a very interesting title because, obviously, it's in German, but it doesn't really describe the, the, the machine. It, it, the listing said, um, I'm, I'm going to mispronounce this, I'm going to butcher the German language, so I'm very sorry. Um, Selteni Anlage Puma Computer IBM 2020, which translates from German into Rare Plant Puma Computer IBM 2020. A Puma Computer. <laughs> and I'm like, What's what a Puma this? Computer? What is yeah. that? And there's a handful of photos. Um, there's one of uh, two reel-to-reel tape drives and a model I've never actually seen before. There's a cabinet full of uh, disc packs. There's an IBM card punch. There's a picture of the System 360 logo a picture of some manuals open, a picture of a card reader, a disk drive, and some punch cards. I'm like, okay, this looks like it could be an IBM 360. And the description translates to, um, Dear Sirs and Madams, we offer you a relatively rare plant Puma computer IBM 2020, probably from the 1980s, in red with accessories, shelf with rolls on, individual parts identified by the numbers System 360, IBM 29, 3504, and a whole other list of parts. Since this system has been in an older house for some time, we know that not if it is complete. Whether all parts are there is not known to us as an executing company on behalf of the homeowner. Items are in worse condition and possibly corroded. This is my favourite part. The dimensions are different. Maximum height, 1.7 metres approximately. In total, six parts in the dimension of approximately 1 to 1 metre, depth approximately 60 centimetres. Collection, oh sorry, condition for delivery. Collection in Nuremberg at ground level within 14 days. Good luck and fun bidding. And then on the 8th of the 4th, 19, the seller added the following information. A Mercedes-Benz Sprinter full. Now, I don't know if you guys have a Mercedes-Benz Sprinters in the US, but they're kind of a, a large van. 
I, I think that they would be the equivalent of what we have in the United States that Amazon uses to deliver for Amazon Prime. They're like this um, uh, van that's about oh, maybe 10 meters long, right? Maybe not that long. No, I'd say I'd say it's smaller than that. Yeah, they're probably equivalent to something like a. Is it called a Chevy Astro van? Uh, something like that. Something yes. Like that? Yes. Okay. It, it's got all yeah. the windows are kind of blacked out, and um, it, there's and there's just this big yeah, vertical that's space, what they, right? Without the windows. Yeah, but they're not. They're not. Certainly not huge, and the weight restrictions are quite limiting on them in the United Kingdom, certainly, um, because the total vehicle weight can't exceed three and a half tons. Wow. Uh, including everything in it. So we're thinking, okay, well, that, that seems a bit weird. But anyway, so in the bidding when we looked at it was, you know, a few hundred euros. And we were like, well, we may as well have a bid. So we, we put 500 euros on, on the auction and um, carried on with our evening and whatever else. And the next day got up for work and went to the office. And, of course, Chris and I sit next to each other at work. So we opened up the, uh, opened up the eBay auction and watched the bidding. And towards the end, the bidding was like to climb and I bid a few times more. And I thought, what are we actually going to pay for this? So I thought, uh, you know, why not? And entered a number and hit return and waited. And the auction, the hammer fell on a 3,710 euros. So Wow, about $5,000 worth. Yeah, so we were now the product owners of an IBM 360, or so we thought. Um, <laughs> Crazy. Yeah. I then sent an email to the auction house um, and waited to hear back. And about 24 hours later, I got an email back saying, yes, thank you. Um, let us know when you'd like to collect. I thought, right, okay. Well, they've given us a description of what it is. It's ground level. This should be fairly easy. All of the IBM equipment of that era fits through a standard-sized door. Um, so that should be fine. It's all on wheels. Yeah, this is going to be fine. It's probably in storage in a barn, I thought. And you said it was a residential home earlier, right? So, like, n no red flags yeah. so far. So, yeah, I figured it was going to be somewhere in the countryside outside Nürnberg. Um, of course... I get the address off of them, and I look at it, and it's in downtown Nuremberg. I'm thinking, who is storing an IBM 360 mainframe in downtown Nuremberg, where property prices are not cheap? I thought, I thought that's odd. And I looked at Street View, and there's this, down this street, there's lots of apartment blocks, and then there's this abandoned building, it's all sort of closed up on the side, that looks like it was built quite a long time ago. I'm thinking, I, I wonder if it's in there. Anyway, so... Um, I went online and I was trying to find a truck with a tail lift because some of this stuff is quite heavy. I'm not going to be able to lift it into the truck. A processor weighs 600 kilos. That's a lot. -ish. So we were like, yeah. So we were like, right, okay. So I went online. I found that sixth rental car um, will guarantee you a van with a, with a tail lift. So I thought, wonderful. So I booked that online. We booked some hotels and booked some flights. Um, and what the plan was is that I was going to fly out uh, the first day, go and meet um, the auction house contact, um, and the next day, Chris Blackburn and his father, John, were going to fly out, meet us there, and we were going to do the move. We were going to get everything out of the building, put it on the truck, go rent some storage uh, at Nuremberg, stick it there, and then sort out getting it back to the UK. Um, because they'd made it very clear they wanted the whole thing cleared out within 14 days, because the building was due to be demolished. I see. We're like, right, okay. That sounds like a reasonable plan. Yeah. So um, I fly up there, we land, I land in Nuremberg, it's a beautiful, very hot day, I go and check into the hotel and whatever else. Um, the next morning I, I get up and I uh, get in my rental car um, and drive over to this building. I park up, I'm a bit early, 20 minutes early, and I wander down and there's a, a glass, like glazier shop next door, they make glass window panes and that sort of thing, so there's all these panes of glass everywhere, and, and there's a bloke pulls up on a, on a Harley Davidson. 
he gets to the bike and wanders into the glazes. I thought, oh, okay. And then at the allotted time, he walked out and he walked up to me and he said, uh, are, you, are you Adam Bradley? I said, yes, I am. And he said, oh, I'm, I'm, my name's Gunter. Um, I'm here to show you the IBM. I said, okay, wonderful. And he spoke fantastic English, I must add. Um, if it hadn't been for Gunter for this entire experience, it would have been much more difficult. <laughs> <laughs> right. uh, he was our translator, uh, photographer, everything else. So he um, shows the building and... At the front, there's a door, and it has a, a single step, but this door is closed up by a wooden shutter and clearly hasn't been used in a very long time. So he says, there is a problem. And I said, well, what's the problem? He takes me around the side and shows me the door that does open, which has three very large steps amounting to about one and a half metres high. Wow. Now, as I say, this thing weighs multiple hundreds of kilos. And if you could build a very long ramp out of the steps, it wouldn't be so bad, but... This alleyway that was down was maybe two and a half metres wide, three metres wide. So it would be a very steep ramp if you were to build one, which would make it very uncontrollable. I thought, right, that's not great. And he said, no, that's not the problem. What's the problem? So, what is the problem? <laughs> so we opened the door and somebody has installed a, a heavy duty water pipe behind the door. So the door only opens about 15 inches. Oof. So you have to sort of sidle into this room. I'm like, okay, this has just gotten very interesting. So um, we get into the building, and there's a false floor in it. This had actually at some point been used as some form of lashed-up computer centre. Um, but over time, the false floor had gotten damp and started sagging in, so all of the machine wheels were sunken into the false floor, all higgledy-piggledy, some of the floor tiles would give way underfoot, and this kind of thing. But I look around, and I think, this is not a single IBM 360, there's more here. So I wander on down, and I find the main 360 processor, um, a printer, uh, two disk drives, a multifunction card machine, a 29 card punch, and two large tape drives, which is all on the listing. I also found a console desk, which I'd never seen before. Um, and as I walk down to the end, I see another IBM 360 uh, in blue with the cables wrapped around it, and a large printer, and opposite that, an IBM 370. I think I say turn around to Gunther and I say, um, "So what's uh, what's as?" And he says, "Well, everything in the room." Wow, everything! I'm like, right, you he said, "You have bought the contents of this room. I just need it gone." I'm like, "What? Wow. Okay, jackpot." Yeah, except how do I now get it out of this building? <laughs> so to set <laughs> yeah. the scene even more, this is in the back streets of Nuremberg, which were built a very long time ago, and it's all cobbled streets as well. Ooh. So it's not a flat tarmac surface and a wide road that you can park a truck in and easily load things with. If you park a truck in the street, you're blocking the street. Um, we also can't get a lorry down there because it's too tight and everything's on a grid system in this part of Nuremberg. But the grid systems, the, the way they park their cars, if you want to turn around a corner, you can't see what's coming. It's it's very mm. old European city. Um, it's beautiful. I thoroughly recommend visiting Nuremberg. But for this purposes, it was uh, it was certainly a challenge. Um, so I discussed how difficult it would be to close a road in Germany, and the answer is apparently very difficult, um, unlike in the UK where you can just apply to the council. Uh, so we started thinking about it, and I cancelled my truck. I thought, there's no way I'm going to get this out of the building. So I said to Gunther, I'm going to have to go away and think about this. I'll, we'll come back tomorrow with Chris and John and get their thoughts on the matter. Mm -hmm. So I went away, and uh, Chris and John flew in that evening, met with them. We had a few beers, as you do in Germany, had a bit of food. The next morning got up and took them to the building and showed them the uh, showed them the, the problem. And after the initial excitement of obviously seeing the incredible machine that we'd bought, because this thing was beautiful, 
um, we realized that there were two things here. One, it was still cabled in. So all the cables still ran under the floor. Ooh. And they hadn't been moved in probably 40 years. Wow. Um, I asked Gunter when the last time somebody had sort of opened this building up was, and he thought it was the early 80s. My goodness. So I thought, right, okay. I said to Gunter, I said, the only way we're going to get this out of the building is by that front door, which has a small step, maybe 12 inches. Um, I said, we're going to have to build a ramp and we're going to have to take out the front door. Do you have the keys to the front door? And he said, no, no one's opened that door since, as far as we know, 1975. Oh, my goodness. So I thought, right, okay. um, Can I cut the door out of the frame? And he said, I don't know. I'll have to get back to you on that. I said, okay. So uh, I took some photos, did some documentation, did some measuring, estimated weights and so on and so forth. And we went on our merry way. Um, I threw it to Gunter the next day. And he said, I've spoken to the uh, the owner of the auction house. And he said, yes, you can um, do whatever you need to do to get out of the building so long as the building is secure at the end of it. I said, great. So And so that you have to get all of that equipment out of the building because the building's going to be demolished. And that's a hard date. You have to get things out of there. Well, this is what we're told. But this is this flexes, flexes a bit in the future, and basically what I can establish is they wanted the building cleared out because whoever had been resident there hadn't paid rent in a very long time. And we're talking 15 years' time. Oh, um, my goodness, jeez. And they had just ignored it because it's this old building from the 1800s, and it's not really worth anything apart from for its real estate. Um, but it was quite sturdily built and everything else. And eventually the owner had turned around and said, look, we need this cleared out now. And they'd gone in thinking it was an empty building, and it wasn't. Um, and I'll, I'll get on to what else they found in the building in a minute. Um, so, yeah, we had to clear this building out. We had a 14-day window to do it. So I said, right, okay. So uh, we went back to the UK, and the next weekend was a bank holiday weekend. So um, you get – it was, I think, a weekend where both the Monday and the Friday were bank holidays. So it's a four-day weekend for us. And this and this is about a year ago, right? This is April, May of 2019. Yeah. This is pretty much a year ago, weekend before last, I think, yeah. Um, God, it doesn't seem like that long ago, to be honest with you. <laughs> um, so I thought, right, I mean, I'm a, I'm a big metal guy. I like metalworking, I like cars. I'm not a big woodworking guy. So I had to go out and buy quite a few tools. I went out and bought a circular saw, or a jigsaw, reciprocal saw, you know, all this stuff. And I hired a van. Now, I, at the time I was um, 24, I'm now 25. Um, hiring a van in the UK at that kind of age is very difficult. There's a lot of risk involved for the for the companies, and it's very expensive. And when I said I need it for the bank holiday weekend, and I want to go to Europe in it, I got an awful <laughs> lot of no. That's not happening. Sorry. Now, to make this more complicated, Chris could have rented the van because he's in his thirties. However, he had some meetings um, in London the day we were supposed to come back, so he wouldn't have been able to drive the van back. So it became quite a complicated scenario <laughs> of trying to figure out how to do this. Um, and I ended up just phoning around all these different van hire companies for about a day or driving around to them and just seeing them to see if they could help me. And I phoned up eventually Hertz Rent-A-Car, um, who, while they are in the UK, they're not like a massive presence here. Um, even Europe Car, who are the European hire company, wouldn't rent me a van to go to Europe in. My goodness. <laughs> so uh, I went to Hertz and they said, yeah, no problem at all. And they gave me a price and they said they'd give me the required vehicle on hire form, which basically says you haven't stolen the vehicle when you go across the border. Good thing. Um, yeah, so I uh, I said, yep, wonderful. Booked the van, uh, went and paid them. I think it was about 700 and something pounds. Um, 
picked up this Mercedes Vito um, and uh, started driving to Germany, effectively. Uh, we loaded up with all the tools, got on the Eurotunnel, drove over there. Um, now, while we'd been in Germany last time, we stopped and grabbed some uh, some masks and gloves from uh, like a hardware store out there. And the hardware store is called Bauhaus. Now, in the UK, we have a few major hardware store chains. We have uh, Wix, Screwfix, Homebase, and B&Q. None of them quite rival Bauhaus. Really? I can't... I've never been in a shop quite like it. They sold everything. And, I mean, it was a credit to Germany because everything had a list of the euro norms it met underneath its price tag. Excellent. So... This mask meets EN15, you know, and details of the Euro norms, and they'd even printed the Euro norms in the store for you to go and check. Wonderful. It was it was so quintessentially German. It was fantastic. Uh, it's exactly what you'd expect from that of kind of place. Of course, it is. Um, yeah. So we uh, we decided to stop at a Bauhaus to pick up the requisite wood because we didn't want to put the wood in in the UK and drive all the way there and charge the diesel and whatever else. So we uh, decided to go and buy it in Germany. So we stopped at one, I think it was near Stuttgart. And this Bauhaus was so big, you could drive the van into the store. Whoa. Wow. So you could drive around all the aisles of wood to pick up your wood and put it in your van. And then at the end, you could open your van, they'd just scan it in the van. <laughs> That's great. That's so great. Exactly. So we're going around and finding wood and picked some pretty chunky wood to use for this ramp, obviously, with the weight it's got to carry. And I had to get the wood cut because it was too long to fit in the van. What then entailed was about a 35-minute conversation between a German chap who worked for Bauhaus and myself, with me trying to explain I wanted the wood cut and him not speaking a word of English. And me not speaking a word of German. And there's no (laughs) Gunther around because Gunther's in Nuremberg. In Nuremberg. So uh, we had this very convoluted <laughs> conversation, which ended with me carrying the wood to a saw and drawing a line on it, and then him understanding and going, right, okay, yes, we fine, can cut it. and cutting the wood for me. <laughs> yeah. Um, so we then went and uh, went and paid for the wood, which is a few hundred euros, and then we uh, drove the rest of the way to Nuremberg. Uh, we booked an Airbnb for the evening, which was in the attic of a house in sort of the, the suburbs of Nuremberg. Um, Nuremberg has a fantastic public transport system with uh, trams and um, subways. So we headed into um, into Nuremberg town centre for some dinner. Uh, on our previous visit, we'd found a restaurant called Restaurant Oberkrainer, which is on one of the central squares in Nuremberg. And uh, I mean, I'm a huge fan of, of German food and German beer. I, I love a Wiener Schnitzel. Oh my gosh! And, um, I love, love Wiener Schnitzel. Yeah, They're sh- so great. The best. Yes. Uh, and Spatzler, which is the cheesy German mm-hmm. noodles. Yeah, it's fantastic. So um, we went there again. It got to the point at the end of all this where when we'd walk in, they'd, they'd just look at us and go, it's those two English guys again, and just seat us and hand us schnitzel. <laughs> like, it didn't, it didn't even require a menu anymore. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Um, it was very funny. So we uh, we headed there, had some dinner, had a few beers. We are pretty tired from the from the drive. Um, and we went to bed. The next morning, we got up very early and headed to meet Gunter at the uh, at the building. So we get there. I think right. The first thing we're going to do is build a ramp, or cut the door out of the frame and then build a ramp. So this door's obviously been in place for a very long time, and it was made of solid wood. So I first thought, well, okay, I'll just cut around the locks with a vibrating saw, but that didn't work. I broke the blade. Um, so then I thought, okay, well, maybe we'll just use a crowbar and leave the door open. Yeah, that, that didn't really work either. 
Um, so I ended up cutting down the side of the hinges with a circular saw, which was a bit dodgy. Uh, then using the uh, reciprocal saw to go around the hinges and pull the door out. So that was the first step. That was job done. We did our jump up and down the ramp to test its strength, and that was uh, that was fine. So um, we then cut the boards for the door and uh, boarded the building back up. We uh, headed. We then headed outside and thought, well, what do we do now? We've got a bit of time left. We thought, let's start uncabling the machine because obviously these cables have been set here for quite a long time, and we we need to check that we can actually get this machine moved out of here quickly when the, we actually come to it. So we went to look at all these cables and. What I didn't know and what I've since learned is that IBM 360 Model 20 cables are actually hardwired into the backplane of the processor. So it's not a case of two connectors on both ends. It's a case of a connector on one end and the other end is hardwired into the machine. It comes out the bottom, which means there's not a whole lot of clearance between the bottom of the machine and the floor. And this cable's wedged underneath the middle of it, which makes moving them a real challenge. Yeah. And how long are the cables? Oh, that um, you can actually specify your own length according to the manual, um, but ours are—I'd say maximum length is probably ten meters. Wow! Um, so thirty feet of cable that comes out of this—I mean, that's like that's a lot of cable in addition to the machine itself that you can't separate. Yeah, so you can wrap the—you have to wrap the cable on top of the machine, and it comes in quite a bundle. If you look at our website, there are some photographs of the cabling on top of the machines. It's significant. And to make it worse, um, these cables had been under the floor for so long. They were like spaghetti. It was absolutely rock hard. Oh, man. So we knew it was going to be a challenge. And to make it worse, all these connectors were aluminium, and they'd all seized. So we had to use plus gas, which is a releasing agent, to go between the connector housings to get them apart. So I unhooked all these connectors and tagged the cables where they'd come from with identifying tags took lots of photographs so I could put it back together again in the end. Um, we then thought, well, there's not much more we can do here. So we started um, picking up the things we knew we could take with us in the van, which is things like the manual packs and the punch cards we found lying around, that sort of thing. Loaded the van up and thought, right, well, that'll have to do. So um, we went out for a, for a beer that night with um, Gunther and also a woman called Olga from the auction house. Now, Olga had been the first person that I'd talked to. Um, and Olga is, I think, a bit of a polyglot because she's a Russian uh, who lives in Nuremberg and speaks German but also speaks English. Um, so she came out to dinner with us to, of course, restaurant Oberkroner. Um, and we had a very pleasant meal. And the next day, Chris had to get up very early, around 4am, to, uh, to catch a tram to go to the airport so he could catch his flight to London City Airport for a meeting that day. Um, and I jumped in the van intending to drive back to the UK. Um, and then I remember the day before when we were packing up, we'd been really tired and on a bit of a tight schedule for time. So we'd just thrown everything into the van. So I thought I should probably reorganise that before I do a 400 miles of autobahn and followed by a few hundred miles of Europe. Didn't you say you, you were going to put it in storage before you got it out of the building? But at this point, you think you're driving it back. No, no, at this point, the, the machine's still in the building. I'm driving the van back with all the t utilities and tools we are taking to build the ramp and the door. Of course. You haven't taken the machine out yet. No, the, the machine... processor is still in there. Got it. The machine's Got still it. in there, yeah. So I'm on this, uh, this very quaint German street in the suburbs of Nuremberg, unloading this entire Mercedes, British registered Mercedes van, uh, which is full of tools and wood. 
and sawing wood in half in the middle of the street to try and fit it all back in the van with very bemused German people walking past me looking at me as this crazy man in the street um, sawing his wood. But put it all back in the van and I drove back to the UK, got it unloaded, got the van returned. So the next step was to actually go and move the machine. So I contacted a few of my friends to see if any of them could come and give us a hand to move this thing because I knew it was going to be very challenging. And unfortunately, most of them were were very busy um, at the time and unable to come and help us on such short notice because we were going the following week. Um, so Chris and I booked some time off and luckily a couple of my friends, or one friend in particular, Lawrence Wilkinson, uh, who's an IBM expert, he's originally from New Zealand but now lives in Switzerland, uh, and his friend Jan Jäger came up from uh, Switzerland to meet us in Nuremberg and give us a hand and to have a look at the machine. Um, so they came up, we all met back in Nuremberg, uh, Chris, myself, Gunther, Lawrence and Jan, and started unloading the machines. So parked the van with a tail lift. Oh, I need to tell the story of collecting the van, I always forget this bit. So we turned up to 6th Rent-A-Car in Nuremberg, and I went inside to collect the van. They just handed me some keys and I signed a form and they sort of ushered me out the door to this big car park of van so I had to wander around trying to find the right van and I found the one and they'd given me of course the most battered van you'd ever seen <laughs> of course they did um, <laughs> yeah I get in this van put the key in turn it and I get about eight warning lights on the dashboard <laughs> so tail lights out headlights out side lights out indicators out uh, coolant level low washer fluid low all this stuff coming up so I go back inside and she appears, this woman, with a orange sixth rent-a-car watering can full of water, opens the bonnet and tries to pour it in the brake fluid. <laughs> so we had to stop her putting it in the brake fluid and direct it to the coolant reservoir, where she then proceeded to pour approximately two and a half litres of coolant into the van and then just shut the bonnet, waved at me and left. That's it. So I'm thinking, right, this definitely leaks coolant, but I don't really have much choice here. I'm going to have to take it. And it had the so lift take, in the back, so you were you were yeah, happy yeah. with that part. It had a tail lift, and to make it even better, in the UK we get what's called a column lift quite a lot, which is two lead screws on either side of the van that lift the tail lift up and down. They're not particularly strong. This one had a proper hydraulic tail lift on it, which we were pretty happy about. So we uh, we drive over to to the place, um, Galgenhofstrasse, that's what it was called start moving the machine so we start moving the small things first we take a couple of disk drives and um just the small things we can we can sort of roll out the door easily uh, kind of the punch card machines that sort of thing and we decide that before we take anything heavy we should actually probably go and rent some storage because we haven't done this yet we haven't had time the day before to go and rent the storage so there were two storage options there was a place in central nuremberg but it looked very expensive um or there was a place in a town called firth which is approximately I'd say 12 to 15 miles outside of Nuremberg, which looked like a much better deal. And the place was called My Storage. So we decided to drive over there. We drive there, walk in the door. And I mean, this place is, it's very big. It's an old warehouse that they've converted. And it's very new and it's very modern. And it's, a, it's actually a very nice storage facility. Um, and we walk in, there's a German guy behind the counter. And I had made a phone call beforehand to say, can I just walk in and, and get storage? And they said, yes, no problem at all. So he showed us around a few storage units and we wanted something reasonably large. So he took us into the basement, and there was one in the corner that was quite big and probably suit our purposes quite well. There's a big cargo lift that takes you down there. Everything's great. Gives us a price. We say, yep, that sounds good. So we decided to buy three-month storage because we knew we'd probably, if we didn't use it, we could get a refund for the difference, and it was discounted for buying three months. You got a free month or something. So it made sense for us at the time. We then unload our stuff, 
get it into the cargo lift, take it downstairs, stick it in the room, lock up again, um, go back up top, get back in the van and drive to uh, drive back to the place. By this point, um, Jan and Lawrence have arrived from Switzerland. So we decide the next thing to take is the blue processor, which is right by the door. And this is wedged in with a printer against a column that's supporting the roof of the building. Now, when I say wedged in, I mean wedged in. We had to manoeuvre things. There was five of us sort of rocking machines to try and get this loose. It was very in there. I don't know how they got it in the building, to be honest with you, or how in the space. So we eventually get this loose, get it out of the building on our ramp. This was the first real test of our ramp, and it held up. Got it on the tail lift, and with a bit of groaning from the tail lift, it went in the van. Um, as it turns out, because we had to park very much on a curb, on, on the slant, um, controlling very heavy things with wheels on a slant in a van is not very easy. So, of course, it just proceeded to roll into the wall of the van, but hey-ho. Um, Ratchet strapped that in, drove that down to, uh, to the storage place, uh, unloaded that, went back for more. So we keep doing this for a while, back and forth, loading things up, and then we get to a tape drive. Now, I hadn't thought much about the tape drives, a couple of motors, it'll be fine. I take the first tape drive, which was the master tape drive, and we're rolling it out, we're thinking, this thing seems quite heavy. Put it on the ramp, and I mean, the ramp is groaning and creaking and a bit of a cracking noise coming from it, and we're thinking, this doesn't sound good, and we're having trouble moving this thing, it's very heavy. Get it onto the tail lift, push it as close to the fulcrum of the lever as we possibly can. Chris goes and pushes the up button on the tail lift, and the hydraulic pump go- makes a whirring noise, and nothing happens. Ugh. So we're now stuck with a tape drive, which, as it turns out, weighs 980 kilograms. Jeez, so 2,000 pounds, yep. that's a very heavy tape drive. On, wow. On a tail lift, on a slope, on a cobbled street. <laughs> that I can't get back in the building in central Nuremberg. <laughs> so we're thinking, what on earth What's... do we do now? Don't know. So we, I get under the tail lift with my hands and Gunther does the same on the other side and using all of our brute force that we had, managed to force the tail lift up with the hydraulic pump assisting to get this thing into the van. And both of us underneath the tail lift was just enough to help the hydraulic pump lift this thing up. Wow. And this is all while... You're lucky it didn't fall back off. Well, this is all while Jan and Lawrence are having to try and hold this thing on the tail lift, on the slant. Yeah. So we roll it into the van, and of course the first thing that happens is it rolls into the side of the van and smashes the rail off the side of the van. <laughs> oh, jeez. But luckily it hit the back of the tape drive, not the front, because the front's made of glass and didn't do any damage, yeah. but it did break the van Good. even more than it already was. Oh, dear. Um, I then ratchet strapped this thing in with as many ratchet straps as I could find. Um, and we got that taken off to the, the storage facility. I mean, manoeuvring it through the storage facility was certainly an interesting experience and not one that I would care to repeat. Um, because of all the cobblestones as well, I'm sure. Well, the storage facility wasn't too bad. It's nice, flat concrete, modern warehouse. But there's a lot of very tight corners and it didn't turn very well because all the bearings and the wheels just seized up and everything else. Oh, dear. So we get it inside and, and that was okay. Luckily, the second tape drive... Um, it's much lighter and is only a slave driver. It doesn't have all of the power supplies in it, which is what's so heavy in the in the main one. So um, with that in, Lawrence and Jan had to head off back to Switzerland because they had a long drive ahead of them. And we carried on unloading, intending to go back the next day and finish off the unloading. So we took a couple more bits in the van, drove back to our Airbnb and parked up after securing the building again. 
um, went out for some dinner and drinks, and the next day he got up really early again and headed back there. So what was left was everything that was still cabled under the floor. So that was the processor, the console, um, the printer, multifunction card machine. So we thought, right, let's get these cables out then. This is what I've been dreading. So we lifted up a load of the floor tiles. And I mean, these cables, as I say, are very stiff, haven't moved in a very long time, but are still very delicate. So it took us hours to unpick all these cables and get them out and try and get them out from under the floor with the machines. And to make it worse, you can't really get behind the machine because there's various detritus lying everywhere, like old air conditioning ducts and a wood-burning stove. Ooh. Which is made of cast iron, of course. Oh, can't move that. All this stuff. So we, um, we pull all this stuff out, manage to get all the cables out and get the lighter things out. At this point, two of the chaps from the glaziers next door had turned up, and these are, are very large, strong chaps um, who said they'd help us move the processor. So they come in and they give us a real hand moving this processor on our own, which was which was very helpful. Um, we get that loaded into the van and sort of the, the room is now clear. That was the last thing. So it took us two days and a lot of effort um, to clear the room. And at this point, I'm having a look around. And I look over and there's this by the, where was the 370 was. And if you look at the photos, you'll see there was a 370, a blue 360 at the end, where I talk about where they're wedged in with the column. There was what a big window. And the window was covered on the outside by some wooden slats, because in, in Europe it's very common to have um, drop-down slats over your windows on the outside of the building. And I then realised that the window wasn't actually a window, it was just a hole in the wall and the glass had been removed. So somehow this equipment has stayed dry in the building, despite there actually being a massive uh, hole in the wall that's only covered by hole. thin wooden slats for over 40 years. 40 years? Yeah. My goodness. Wow. So what an incredible story just to get it out of the building. And so now at this point, you have it in a storage unit in, um, in Germany. Yep. Let's fast forward to what happened um, just after that. You went back to England and now you had to figure out how to get this equipment again from the storage unit to England. And you have about three months to do that. And you also have a very long journey with this really precious equipment. So, well, like, how do you figure that out? So, I didn't think it would be too difficult, realistically. I thought, you know, we can probably just find a haulage company that has a hard-sided truck and trailer with a, um, with a tail lift. Because, cumulatively, this stuff weighs, let's say, 14 tons. Um, and it will fill out Whoa, a lorry. that much 14 tons of equipment. Oh, yeah, so that Mercedes Sprinter comment I made earlier, it's not going in a Mercedes Sprinter van. This is going to fill articulated no. lorry, fill the lorry, and, oh you know, my gosh. it weighs 14 tons. So this is not something you can drive. You absolutely have to hire someone to do this. Yeah, I would have had to make 20 trips in a van to do this. <laughs> um, which was just, as you quite imagine, not viable. <laughs> so uh, Not at all. I know that the internet helped somehow to find someone to move this for you, yeah, right? So, how, did that, how did that go down? So I got a few quotes from a few haulage companies, and most of them frankly said, we can't help you, sorry, we're not going to Europe right now because of Brexit, or we don't have a suitable vehicle, or all this kind of stuff. And the answer I otherwise got was, well, if you put it on pallets, we can move it. Well, I can't lift uh, nearly one ton tape drive onto pallets for you, I'm sorry, sort of thing. Um, but we ran a, a crowdfunding a campaign online to raise five thousand pounds to move it back, which is about the estimate we've been we've been given. And I must say, um, 
we posted the article on Slashdot and quite late at night and overnight I got some notifications saying the server had crashed, the database had crashed because we got Slashdot overnight. We had millions of hits on the blog just appearing out of nowhere. That is so great. I didn't even realize Slashdot was still a thing. Yeah, it's really That's still amazing. A thing. We've been Slashdotted like three <laughs> times, I think it's taken us down. Um, wow. Also, the register um, picked up on it, which is a tech news site from the UK. Oh. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I love the register. Yeah, they're great. So they picked up on it a few times. They've actually been a real great proponent of ours. They've really helped us out. Um, Wonderful. And we raised the money in less than two weeks. Perfect. Um, which was fantastic. But we we're still having trouble finding a haulage company. And I posted about it on the blog. And I did a, you know, Brexit is scuppering our our move because most of the hoardings are saying we just we can't help you because we were not worried worried this was at the time of when we didn't know if brexit was going to happen if it was going to be a hard brexit if it was going to fall out of europe or what was going to happen and they didn't want their trucks getting stuck in europe and similarly we wanted to beat brexit because we didn't have to end up paying import tax on this machine that we can't really value so you got to get it in as soon as possible yeah it was quite a, a stressful um, proposition for us so the register picked up on my blog post and they did a post um, about it saying, I think the uh, post entitled uh, Brexit Scuppers Big IBM Rescue or something to that effect. Um, because on the register, we're now called the, the Big Iron Geeks. That's what they've nicknamed us. Um, <laughs> which I'm, I'm not opposed to. I quite like that. Um, <laughs> no, not at all. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so they, they made this post and somebody on LinkedIn had seen a post by another chap and had commented, um, have you seen this uh, register article? And he responded with, oh, no, I haven't. I'll, I'll give him a call. So um, I hadn't seen any of this. I hadn't been aware of any of this occurring. I walked into my office one morning, and at 9 a.m. on the dot, I got a call. And the chap introduced himself as Dan Appley from Sunspeed, who are a specialist IT relocation data center services company. Perfect. And he said... <laughs> That's exactly what you yeah, want. I can help you. We specialize in moving delicate equipment, server equipment. We move things to the nuclear industry. We know what we're doing. He said, and furthermore, we really like what you're doing. We really like the project. Um, and we'd like to give you a, a quite a significant discount. In fact, we'll just do it at a cost price to us. I said, wow, that's, that's really very generous and frankly exactly what we need right now. So can you please... Uh, give us a quote so he sent over a quote which was below what the money we'd raised it was um i think around four and a half thousand pounds or something to that effect uh, and he said we'll send over our latest truck we just bought a new truck we'll send that over let's get some dates in the diary so we figure out the dates in the diary and we're free um i messaged gunther and gunther said he'd more than happily love to come and help us and see us again so I thought fantastic and they said they send over the new truck so we uh, flew out to prepare the stuff so i knew that a lot of stuff was just loose Actually, I just realized I missed a part of this story out. After flying back to the UK, uh, when we had collected the machine and moved it into storage, about a week later, I got a phone call um, while I was in a meeting from Gunter. Now, Gunter had never really called me before when I was in the UK. Something's up. So I received this phone call. Yeah, I received this phone call. And uh, he says, uh, Adam, we have found more parts of the IBM. I said, where? We emptied the room. He goes, no, in the room behind. What what do you mean the room behind? He said, "Well, the room behind the room." I said, well, "I didn't see that room." He said, "No, we didn't think there was anything in it." It's like right. He goes, "Yeah, it was under a pile of Porsche parts." Oh my god! <laughs> it's like, okay. 
So they've opened this room behind the room that we've been in because it turns out this building is much longer than we thought it was. Um, and it was basically this room was like a machine shop. There was a milling machine, a lathe, um, and a lot of random junk. Um, pottery, old engines, things you can imagine. And under a pile, I mean, there was basically an entire um, classic Porsche 911 in there, minus the chassis. So engine, body panels, the lot, just no chassis. For a guy who likes vehicles, that must have sounded amazing. Did you get that as well? Unfortunately, that had all gone to auction by the time I got there. Uh, uh, and it sold for, for quite a significant amount of money, unfortunately. Um, and I have more than enough cars to keep me entertained. <laughs> <laughs> Too many projects on the go at once. But he said, yeah, we found more. Do you want it? And I said, well, yes, I do. He said, okay, you need to be here tomorrow, really. <laughs> he said, otherwise, it's going to scrap thought oh great so i messaged chris and i book a flight the next morning for i think it was 6 a.m um out of stansted to nuremberg and i jump on this flight and i've booked another van and i go over and i pick these bits up he says oh i found some things in the attic as well do you want to go up to the attic and i was like well we've been in the attic of the main room we've you know had a look around there was some vw bits up there but nothing major he goes no no the other attic of course there's another attic there's another attic so we go out the door, and it's round the back, up these concrete stairs, which have clearly been there for over 100 years, which are covered in slippery moss. So not like the safest walking place. And there's no handrail or anything. It's just these slippery concrete moss stairs. And we go up to this door in the back of the building, and I walk in, and the floor sags as soon as you step on it. And there are holes in the floor that lead down to the room below, where it's just broken through and the roof's leaked. But all over the wall were boxes upon boxes of unused IBM punch cards. Oh, amazing. Now, these things are hen's teeth. And IBM machines in particular, IBM would made the assumption that if you've got an IBM machine, you're going to buy IBM punch cards. Right. So they're really sensitive to the thickness and the size of the card. So if you use a third-party card, it might not work properly. So these things are hard to find. So I thought, right, we need to get all of these out of here as well. The problem is they were on shelves which had been made by bending bits of metal pipe and screwing them to the wall and then just sticking wood on top of it and piling the boxes on top of it. And it sat there for so long, if you pull the box, the whole shelf came off the wall. So I'm standing on a ladder that's clearly been there for 50 years, on a floor that has holes in it that's giving way underneath me, trying to pull these boxes off of the shelves that are falling down. But we get them all down and get them down these mossy stairs. These boxes are not light either. And get them loaded up in the van. So I take the van, I put all the stuff in the storage area, and I literally just threw it in the door, like dumped it in the door. Very tired. Dumped the van back at um, 6th, and went and flew back, back home. Wow. Um, so when Sunspeed uh, were going to come and get the stuff, I remembered that I had to get all this stuff into some kind of movable format, because we weren't going to want to spend four hours loading the truck up with random boxes. We needed it on pallets. So um, we went... Uh, when I was planning to go back there again, um, a friend of mine, Chris Wilkie, agreed to come with us and give us a hand. So I've known Chris for a very long time. This is the other Chris. Um, and he's uh, he's what I'd call a doer. He's very good at getting stuff done in a very short time frame. That's what you need. Um, exactly. So just the, just the guy I wanted to come with me. Um, so we flew out there, and we flew out at 5 a.m. from Stansted again, um, landed in Nuremberg, picked up a rental car, um, and went straight to the storage place and I had tried to figure out how you buy pallets in Germany prior to this 
And the answer is that you either have to have a minimum order of around 50, which I didn't need, um, or they're horrendously expensive, mm. talking 45 euros a pallet. Wow. Now, I didn't really want to spend a few hundred euros on pallets that I was going to use once. But I remembered that in the storage area, there had been all these pallets dumped around the place that looked disused. So when I went in, I said to the chap, I said, can I use some of these pallets? And he said, no, they belong to other people. And I said, they've been here for, at this point, six months. They hadn't moved. And he said, in his very typical way, he said, no, I can't. I can't help you. I said, okay, fine. So um, I talked to Sunspeed about getting some pallets brought over from the UK. And they said that they had brought some with them in the truck. So I was like, right, okay, great. So I borrowed the pallets from the um, loading areas that have been left lying around and replaced them with the ones that Sunspeed brought over from the UK when they came over. So we loaded up the pallets um, and got it all prepared to be moved the following day. So all the cables, all the disc packs, everything, all the palletized and ready to go. I moved as much stuff upstairs as I could to get it out of the downstairs locker so we didn't have to use much time in the lift. Um, and that was our sort of morning ready to prepare. And then we uh, went back to the to the hotel, um, intending to go out for some drinks and some dinner and meet Gunter. So we get back to our hotel, and this time I picked a, a hotel in the centre of Nuremberg because it had parking and because it was it was quite cheap for the three of us. Um, and I said to the hotelier, um, "Where's the nearest bar?" She said, "Oh, there's a great English pub just on the corner." I was like, no, I haven't come to Germany to drink in an English pub. I could do that at home. It always, that always happens. I know. It doesn't matter where you go, that happens. So we go into this English pub, and luckily enough, they serve um, German beer. Um, and after about half an hour, Gunther joined us. And then about half an hour later, Chris Blackburn joined us, having just flown in and checked into the hotel. Um, so we had a few beers there. And we were looking around, thinking, this is a, an interesting part of Nuremberg. Lots of interesting characters wandering around here. So um, we carried on. We went out for some dinner. Found a lovely restaurant that Gunter recommended. And it was, I mean, the food was fantastic. I'm sad we hadn't found it before. And if I ever go back to Nuremberg, I will go back there. Although I forgot what it's called. I could find it by walking around, but I couldn't find it by address. Um, yeah. So I'm sorry, I can't recommend it. <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm eating in the restaurant and uh, Gunter says, oh, it's an interesting area you've chosen to stay in. I said, well, why is that? And he said, well, it's the red light district of Nuremberg. Oh, my gosh. I said, well, that will explain. That's why it was cheap. That will explain the, uh, the area. I mean, the hotel was actually very nice. <laughs> yeah, so I found that quite humorous. And it explains some of the more interesting characters. Yeah. So Sunspeed arrives. So I got a message um, the following morning. They were supposed to arrive at, I think, um, 12 p.m. And so we headed there quite early um, to unload all the machines. And they took a message saying there'd been an accident in the autobahn. They were delayed by quite a few hours. I thought, right, fine. So we unloaded all the machines upstairs, got everything ready for them to come so they could just wrap it and roll it onto the truck as soon as they got there. And about an hour after we'd got there, they turned up. Um, so they'd made up the time somehow. Maybe I don't know how. Um, and they got there actually earlier than their estimated time of arrival originally, which was obviously really good for us. I mean, these guys were the professionals. They got, came off the truck. They were really helpful, really friendly guys. They had these boards laid out to move things on easily over the metal grates. Uh, they had, I mean, more bubble wrap than I've ever seen in my entire life with them um, to wrap wow. the machines with. So they put these cardboard corners on the machines to protect the corners. They wrapped the machines in bubble wrap and taped it up, and they pallet wrapped that stuff. Um, and to give you an example of how quick these guys were compared to us, it took the three of us around 
well, probably 10 minutes to wrap a machine. And in the time we had done that, they had each done one. Jeez. So super. But, I mean, they've done it before, right? Yeah. They're professionals. They knew what they were doing. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. And I said, oh, is this your new truck? And they said, no, the new truck needed to be used for something else. So we brought an older truck with us, which is actually slightly bigger. It was about three feet longer. And I said, oh, that's, that's good. You know, sort of thing. Turns out that was very good because when all was said and done and we loaded up, we had filled the truck. Oh, my god! I mean, there was an inch and a half left at the end of the truck. Perfect. So wow. It was full. And 14 tons of equipment. How amazing. Yes. So with that said and done, um, they headed off back to the UK and we drove back to the airport. Um, actually, no, we actually stayed the night in Nuremberg. So we went out in Nuremberg um, and had another dinner and then the next morning flew back. And they were due to arrive at um, our place for drop-off at 1 p.m. Now, I need to give you a bit of background about the place the machine's being kept because it is a bit special. So, yeah, that was going to be my question is where did they, where are you keeping it right now? Where did it get moved to? So, I mentioned earlier my friend Chris Wilkie who came with us to Germany to help us um, collect the machine and wrap it, prepare it and everything else. Chris um, is the leaseholder of a site called Creslow Park. Now, Creslow Park is an ex-radio transmission station from the Cold War. Wow. And it was owned by Section 6, otherwise known as MI6, which MI6, is the British Foreign yeah. Intelligence Agency. Right. Yeah. So it's this big data center-like building with anti-blast walls and a 40-foot razor wire security fence in the middle of nowhere. And you, you can't find it unless you know it's there. Wow. Um, it's a really incredible site. But it's got huge amounts of power flowing into it. It's got massive generators. It's got uh, Rolls-Royce V12 twin-turbo generators in it. Beautiful. Um, this, this place was built for, uh, for the Cold War. And, of course, it was built just before satellites really became a thing. And then when satellites became a thing, it just got switched off and mothballed. They spent all this money building this site, and it lasted about four years. <laughs> <laughs> and your friend is a leaseholder there. Explain to us what that means. That means that he, he has use of the building? So somebody else owns the site, but he's got a, I don't know how long, but I'm going to guess 20, 30 year lease on it. So he pays them um, like a, a rental link, a rental amount, and he has use of the entire site. Okay. Got Effectively, it. he owns it for the next X number of decades. Got it. Um, or something to that effect. I'm not, I'm not obviously privy to the contents of his lease. Um, but yeah, so it's a big building and he uses it as the masthead for his, um, telecoms business. He runs a fiber optic broadband telecoms company along with data hosting and all this kind of other stuff. And he intends to eventually develop it into a data center. I keep a lot of my cars up there and there's a car workshop and whatever else. Um, there's a big empty data hall with false floor and all this power distribution. So, uh, perfect place for us to put the IBM. I was going to say, how lucky to have a friend that has an, a data center with empty space in for you. Exactly. I mean, how common is that in today's market? You know, it's <laughs> wonderful. <laughs> so uh, it all just sort of came together in perfect synchronicity. Uh, and luckily, Chris is a really good guy. Even though he doesn't quite get why we do this, I think he appreciates the, uh, the interest. So the truck turned up, and it turned up a bit early. And, I mean, a few days prior, um, Chris and another friend of mine, Clinton, who works for Chris, had spent the whole day clearing the space because it was full of old server equipment and everything else that was just sort of put there for storage. So we had this big open space ready to use. <clears throat> the truck turns up and we get ready to start unloading. I set up a few cameras to do a time lapse of the unload. And we set to work pulling it all off the truck. Probably got it all unloaded in about an hour and a half. 
Um, so thanks to the Sunspeed guys, got all of our documentation off of them, shook hands, and uh, they left. And we spent the next hour and a half unwrapping the machine and raveling up the many, many meters of bubble wrap. And we were back in the UK. And that was way before Brexit or just before, well, I guess Brexit happened much later in the end space, but at that time you thought it was going to happen in October. So you, when did you guys get back to England and started unwrapping? So um, November the 24th, I think was the day that the machine arrived back in the UK. Um, so with the whole Brexit thing, obviously Brexit got delayed and then there was a withdrawal agreement signed and everything else. So we haven't actually even done Brexit yet. We're still in the sort of the withdrawal phase. And the negotiation phase to know what Brexit still even really looks like. So, um, so you were able to make it before the deadline. You got everything in. You started unwrapping things. That was the end of 2019. Yep. And here we sit in um, in May of 2020. Um, the equipment is all still at Creslow Park. It is indeed. And you've done what kind? Of, yeah, what kind of work have you done since unwrapping there? So there are a couple of other members of the team that are worth introducing. Um, one of them is called Peter Vaughan. And Peter is an engineer working in the medical industry who I've known through the museum for, well, he's been longer, there longer than I have. He looks after the IBM 1130 at the museum and such has a lot of IBM experience, which is very lucky because it's quite hard to come by. So he came along and had a look at the machine and um, was equally as impressed as we were by the condition of it. The machine is in absolutely fantastic condition. There's almost no corrosion on it. It's very dirty, um, but it's in very good physical condition, which is very lucky. So we started cleaning the machine and looking at scanning the manuals and everything else, and it's a long cleaning process. Um, we put a call out for volunteers saying someone interested, and another TNMSC chap called Simon Van Winklen came along and said he'd love to help. What can he do? So um, he's... His project is the 29 card punch, which he set about cleaning and did a fantastic job on. And I'm sure we'll get him to, to carry on doing that. Um, there's a huge problem with acoustic foam in old machines. It degrades and becomes this sticky, horrible mess. So I spent quite a lot of time removing acoustic foam and replacing it. Um, the two disk drives both had disk packs that were stuck in them. And when I mean stuck, we could not get these disk packs out. So um, the last visit, we managed to get those out. We've been looking at the printers, basically just look at the machine, documenting it. Um, giving it a really good clean before we can really start on the restoration process. Tell me about the documentation that you brought over, because there, um, I think I've read that there has been a considerable effort to scan the documentation that um, came out from Nuremberg. Yeah, so when we were in Nuremberg, we found a significant amount of documentation, about 40 manuals, um, which we had assumed was the documentation for the system. Um, a few of them are in German, most of them are in English, which we were very excited about and brought them back. But we hadn't really looked at them in depth. I picked up a few, which were all for the 360, and I bought a large format scanner that scans A0 so I could scan these obscure document sizes because they're slightly larger than A3 lengthways, but not quite A3 wide. They're a bit odd. Um, but having gone through them in depth during this lockdown period, uh, I've realized that quite a lot of them are actually IBM 370 manuals from the 370 we've got we're actually quite thin on the ground on 360 manuals. So I'd hoped that we had the power supply of a documentation because that's the next thing to start doing. But unfortunately, we actually don't. So luckily, the IBM archives have said to us that they'll give us access to anything we need if we ask them. So post-lockdown, I'm hoping to talk to them and hopefully get a full set of manuals digitally that we can look at. So that was a bit disappointing for us in the end. Um, but if anybody is interested in a, in a full set of IBM 370 manuals, uh, give me a shout. <laughs> 
Are you going to open source the manuals or I guess you don't have any copyright uh, holder. You don't have any, you don't own them. So maybe you can't open source them, but um, what do you intend to do with the scanned images? It's a bit complicated. So um, I would love to do that, but uh, IBM rightfully so they own the copyright. What want me to ask permission before I release anything. Um, So I've got to go to them with a big list of everything and go, can I release these and wait to see what they say. And I imagine they'll say yes. I don't think they probably have any commercial value, um, but I don't know. So I have to I have to wait and see what happens there. Um, the other thing we've been doing is we had a lot of tapes come with the machine. Um, so another friend of ours, Delwyn Holroyd at the Museum of Computing, has a tape drive that can read tapes into modern computers. So he's been dumping some of the tapes for us, and we found not a lot so far. We found uh, the records of a plumbing company on some of the tapes, um, and another one that lists contacts of i think billing pays but aside from that um, nothing too interesting yet so i used to work for imation that was spun off of 3m and the business that we had was um i was in the optical uh division so i was mostly uh concerned with cds and dvd media but we had a giant tape division and um that was kind of the bread and butter that animation had when we first spun off but it was 3m before that so i'm curious to know do you have um are there any brands that are associated with the tapes themselves with a ibm brand or some other third-party brand of the tape How, uh, do you have a um any information on that yeah so the vast number of tapes are ibm branded um, they come in IBM spools with IBM logos on them. There are a few others mixed in there, but I, I can't for life remember what the brands were now, and they're very few and far between. There's maybe two or three that aren't aren't IBM brand. Um, but they're all nine track, so fairly easy to read. Nine track, okay. So that'll be easy to get in there. So you've started the cleaning um, after the unwrapping. How much more time do you expect to spend in cleaning and getting everything to a place where you can actually switch it on? I'm guessing your your like your goal is to switch this on, right? Or or is maybe yeah. you have a different goal? So the goal is to have the machine fully functional as it would have been um, when it was new. Beautiful. Um, I suspect it'll be around ten years. Um, before we're at that point uh, really yeah it's not going to be a short term project Um, so the next step after the cleaning and getting it all documented and um, and looking good is to go through and replace all the consumable parts like rubber seals that have started to degrade and everything else once that's done it will be power supplies the next focus so um, CPU power supply is probably the first thing we'll look at which we'll need um, a bench test to test the outputs and everything else and probably we want to replace the capacitors as well because the capacitors all um, contain PCBs and they're quite old. I don't really fancy reforming them, so we'll probably have to replace those with modern ones, which are admittedly very expensive, but probably worth doing rather than risking the machine. So there's that. Once that's done, it will be a case of logic testing, getting the machine up and checking the logic, um, as well as doing all the mechanical engineering around the punch card readers and tape drivers and everything else. So I started looking at punch card readers um, they've got a few worn-out components, but most of them I can make myself. And uh, luckily, a 3D scanning company based in the UK has offered to scan some of the gears for us, so we can we can manufacture new gears. Um, so that's very helpful of them. A few other parts I can turn up on my lathe or 3D print or mill myself, as required. Um, and yeah, I think it will be a long slog. We're also hoping to build an interface box, which is where um, Simon, John, and Chris come in because they're all electronic engineers. Um, in building a, a box that will interface between the machine and the peripherals, 
So we'll be able to do things like read punch card decks into a modern PC and then replay them back over the, the interface. So we don't have to use these the actual machines when we want to. We can test outputs and inputs using modern computer technologies. Computer. Mm. Yeah. And what we'd eventually like to do, the dream is to get the machine operational on the internet. So you'll be able to oh. interact with IBM 360 over the internet. Oh, that is a wonderful goal. Oh, that that would be that would be just a beautiful thing to bring to life a, a piece of technology from the '60s and um, restore it and connect it to the internet that it was honestly never designed for. How how wonderful! Well, yeah, I think it's going to be um, terrible fun having people from all over the world being able to access and use the mainframe remotely. I'm hoping we can sort of sit in the room and see things jump into life without touching it. That would be a, that will be amazing. Um, this is a personal project for you. Yes, uh, both Chris and I are the two. Yeah. So this is. So you're funding it. You're crowdsourcing it. Um, you're you're raising funds to to help you with this restoration. Once you've restored it and it um, it is on the internet, is it going to be? Where will it be located? Will it be? Will it continue to be at Creslow Park, or do you have some other plans for it? Um, for the foreseeable future, it will be at Creslow Park. Um, there is no real museum space in the UK available to take it, though it could be operational. So um, the Museum of Computing at Bletchley Park is completely full, and they've got other machines that they'd like to display, obviously, before um, we put this on display. They've got an early IBM mainframe called Flossy that we'd love to get on display, but it's physically very large we have no room for. Um, other than that, the Science Museum don't operate machines anymore. They stopped doing that a few years ago, unfortunately. And we would need a very large amount of power to run the machine. It is Everything is three-phase, and it will take a lot of energy. Um, so it will remain at Creslow for the time being. What I hope to do is offer some in-steam days, where a small group of people will be able to, to come online and, and buy a ticket to come and see the machine in action, and maybe even operate it or write some code for it if they so wish. Um, maybe groups of no more than sort of 10 people in a day. Because we're hoping to have it laid out exactly like they'd sent to the 1960s, have everything set out as it was, um, have it all functioning exactly as it, as it was back then, so you can really go and experience 1960s computing in, in immersive in the immersive way. When this machine was in its heyday, when it was working um, and doing its thing, what was its primary function? And, and do you have a do you have a feel or a guess for what this particular machine was doing in Germany? So. Um, I have no idea who this machine belonged to or what it was doing. This is one of the great mysteries of this machine. We don't actually know how it ended up where it was. We think the story goes that it was owned by a large company in the local area. They probably had an 1130 before it. And we're guessing that the 370 we've got is the machine they had after it. I would assume that whoever owned it when it went to where its location last um, was probably an engineer that worked on the machine or something like that. There's a bit of a misnomer here. There was some suspicion the machine had belonged to Puma because Puma have a large facility in Nuremberg. However, that mostly comes from the fact that there were Puma logos on the machine. Now, as it turns out, the chap who had owned the machine before, whose name was Jürgen Richter, um, had actually owned a tennis shop. So I now think that perhaps he had uh, he had used the, the machine as his sort of uh, accounting practice for a tennis shop as well as running other services on the side. So... And we know this because I found a lot of his medical records um, inside the machine, uh, along with a lot of his tennis uh, invoices and um, final statements from the bank <coughs> from the early 80s. You know, I, I, I have a thought. Um, if it is related to the tennis shop, then the does it actually have the logo 
um, of just the cat, or is it? Does it have the words, the word Puma in it as well? Because it could be that it's Schlesinger. Schlesinger had what looked like a Puma logo as well. No, it's got a big word Puma. Oh, it does. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Okay. I thought maybe it was Schlesinger. Those two guys are so similar. Yeah. No, it's got the um, the original early uh, green 1980s Puma logo. Um, it's in some of the early photos of the machine. If you look at it from the eBay auction, you can see the the Puma logo on the side of the on the side of the machine. Yeah, I think that, I think that was one to throw off of the scent. I don't honestly know where it came from. There is one application in the punch card trays that we think is a banking application. So it could have even come from a bank, but we don't know, and I'm not sure we will ever know unless we can check the serial number against the delivery list from IBM. How can listeners and people who read um, what you're up to, how can they help you? So um, primarily at the moment, um, there's just really a couple of things we're looking for, which are volunteers who can actually come physically on site with us um, and help us restore the machine. We're looking for people with expertise in electronics, particularly um, 1960s electronics, but anything really. We've got lots of other jobs we need doing, modern interfaces and that sort of thing. Um, we really, really need a power supply engineer who's very comfortable working with three-phase power supplies because none of us are really power supply engineers. Um, I've certainly never done much with linear power supplies and certainly not with three-phase ones. So anyone who could help out with that would be really helpful. And we also would ideally like somebody who can read punch cards. Um, we've got a large number of punch cards which are out of spec, so they're not the right thickness. They might have gotten damp, that kind of thing. And I'm loath to put them through any kind of high-speed reader. And the only kind of machines I've got access to that can read punch cards are all very high speed. Mm. So if you have a single shot or easy-to-run punch card reader optically that you have in the UK that we could use, that would also be very helpful. Um, aside from that, we're not looking for much else right now, but if people want to keep reading the blog and uh, keep up to date with us, that would also be really helpful. We enjoy um, seeing people read our read all about our work and hope they enjoy enjoy it and we'll be able to come and see the machine when it's uh, eventually working. Well, I'm looking forward to eventually visiting you, um, maybe visiting Creslow Park as well to see the machine. Um, yeah, definitely. I know we have some we have some plans to go to the UK um, next year, so hopefully um, we'll be able to do that. Um, you also have some Amazon wish lists as well, right? We do. Yes, we do actually have an Amazon wish list um, listing some things that we would uh, like or need, um, and there's things ranging in, from various prices on there from sort of a, a can of uh, super cold spray that we use for removing foam plus gas up to oscilloscopes and power supplies that we think we might, or we know we will need in the near future. Um, one thing we are definitely looking for is a really good multi-channel oscilloscope um, to use on the machine because uh, all of ours are a bit old. Um, mine still has valves. So uh, <laughs> that would be uh, that would be helpful. Otherwise, you know, eventually I will probably just have to buy one anyway. But if anyone would like to uh, donate one to the project, that would be incredibly helpful for us because it means that they can stay with the machine, and that when other engineers are in, they can they can utilize it rather than it coming back with me because I need it for other projects. That's amazing. I'm I'm so glad you've spent this time with us. I've learned so much, and I'm sure our listeners have. It's been just an interesting story to hear about the journey of getting this piece of equipment from one country to another. Will you join us again at some point in the future and give us an update? Well, thank you for having me. I thoroughly enjoyed it. And yes, I'd love to, definitely. When we have, uh, when we have something to tell you, I will definitely shoot you an email and uh, we can chat again. That would be wonderful. Yeah, thank you so much for joining us, Adam. Right, thank you very much. Thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure. 
Adam Bradley is a multi-talented engineer and a part of the team that is rescuing a 1964 IBM System 360 Model 20 mainframe. You can read about their progress on their blog at ibms360.co.uk. And don't forget to visit the National Museum of Computing online as well. They are at tnmoc.org. And of course, Adam has his own website at ajdb.co.uk. Give those guys a visit. You've been listening to the 107 podcast. Find us online at 107.com slash podcast. And if you have a second, do send us a message. We love hearing from you. Our email address is podcast at 107.com. Until next time, this is Ivan Stegich. Thanks for listening.